0: Fantastic. Well, have you had enough to process? It's just three extra things in the smiling at me. We're all warm here in the place this morning. That's good. All right. I want to ask you a question. If you gathered a few people together and you asked them, what were some of the words or phrases that would characterize um, our culture? What do you think people would say? I think if you got some people together and you asked them that question, uh, very quickly, they'd probably say words like, we are a competitive culture. We are driven by measurables. We love achieving things. We are ambitious. We are aspirational. All of these words, I think, describe aspects of our culture, and I think they're true. The challenge is that when it comes to relating with God, though, we can see him through the same lens. That God might be more interested in what he's going to do through us or for us. One of the questions I want to raise over the next coming two months as we unpack this series called Stepping Out of the Shadows is a simple question that goes like this. What if God is more interested in what he wants to accomplish in us than what he wants to achieve through us? The God might be more interested in what's going on on the inside Then perhaps what we might accomplish for him or for other people on the outside. In fact, sometimes before he's accomplished the things he wants to do in us, perhaps he can't fully work in the way he wants us to work through us. Over the next two months, I want us to unpack this, this idea as we look at six different characters from the Bible. And each of them has something that I'm terming a shadow side. What is a shadow side? Well, it's that side to us that we don't want other people to see. We'd rather keep it in the shadows. In fact, it seems to be far more alive and real in the shadows. To come out into the light just doesn't seem right. In fact, it's the dark side, the selfish side, the unworthy side that can be so true of all of our lives that there's shadows. The problem with shadow sides is left unchecked is they can diminish us and be incredibly destructive for the people around about. And so for the time I have left this morning, what I'm going to do is just launch straight into one of the characters that you're going to bump into over the course of the next two months as we unpack this question. What if God is more interested and wants to do in us than through us? And in particular, as it relates to this idea of a shadow side. You see, we all... Have shadows. I want to start with the story of a man named Jacob. He lived two millennia BC, and this is kind of how his story goes. It starts off with a mum and a dad, Isaac and Rebecca, and a pregnancy. And during sort of the of of Rebecca's pregnancy, she has this turmoil going on in utero, and there seems like a wrestling match. So it says in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, chapter 25, that she inquires of God. What is this wrestling match that's going on within me? And God answers with these words. "Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. The first surprise for Rebecca's life is that she's expecting twins. There's two. The second one, if you like, predicts or... I guess foresees the future and what that life is going to be like living with those two, those two children. You see, the older one's going to serve the younger one, if you like. What will characterize one of the younger one's lives is that there will be struggle, there will be a wrestle, and that will be true for him all of his life. Now, it doesn't answer all the questions about nature or nurture whether it's preemptive, predictive, presumptuous, or any of those things. All it gives us is insight is to the kind of life at least one of them is going to live. And there's going to be, if you like, one word that would characterize his life, wrestle. And so the time comes and she gives birth to two children. The first one is delivered and he comes out ruddy and red and hairy. And so they name him Esau. And sure enough, hot on his heels, literally, with his arm outstretched, clasping onto the heel of his brother, is Jacob And so they see this this action of his, of clasping on and holding on. So they call him Jacob, the one who grasps, the one who holds on to. See, there's going to be this struggle. And they're both born. One is named by his appearance and the other one by his actions. And so they grow up. And we discover of Esau that he loves the open fields. He loves hunting and so does his father. And father does something he should never do. He has a favorite and he favors Esau. But the other, Jacob, Jacob. He's a homebody. He prefers to be around the tents and and, and hang close beside. And he has the apple and the the eye of the affection of his mother. And so the mother does something she should never do. She has a favorite. And so, if you like, the two boys, they're divided, but they're they're in this family together. And as they grow up, we bump into the next, next part of their lives, if you like, this wrestle. Because Esau comes home one day from the outside of the fields where he's been hunting and he's famished. And he sees Jacob, he's cooking up a stew. It's a lentil stew. And Esau runs to Jacob and he says, give me some of that stuff. True to his name, Jacob the wrestler. It's true to form. And he says very sharply back to his brother, will you give me the birthright and I will give you some of my stew. Now, what is a birthright? In our culture, it's hard to actually understand or explain. It's got something to do with inheritance. It's got something to do with the firstborn males. It's got something to do with the first rite of passage that all the privileges and responsibilities fall upon the one more particular than any other. He says, I want your birthright. And and, and Esau wrestles to himself and says, Well, what is a birthright good to me if I'm famished and I starve to death and I die? Sure enough. So so Jacob makes him swear an oath and he forfeits his birthright. And he gives it, if you like, the, the first place in the family goes to Jacob. Well, some years later... When his father's old and the story jumps ahead and Isaac is failing in his eyesight, birthright already having been snatched, taken, wrestled away, we discover that Isaac is at a time in his life where he wants to pass on the only other thing he passes on to his son, even more important than the birthright, and that's the blessing. The idea of the lineage and the family line and all of God's blessings will be poured out upon one that would follow and carry the family name. And so Isaac calls his, his son Esau, and he says, Esau, at the time is coming where I'm probably going to be gathered to my family, and so what I want you to do is go out into the open fields, find some game for me, bring it back, kill it, eat it, and then I'll lay my hands upon you and I'll bless you with a family blessing. Well, Rebecca overhears what's happened. As Esau is gone, the plot thickens because she quickly runs to Jacob and says, quickly, go out and get two goats. Bring them in. Kill them for me. We're going to make a stew because your father is about to pour out his blessing upon your older brother Esau. And Jacob, Jacob resists, mum and says, what are you doing, mum? If, if dad finds out that it's me, he will curse me rather than bless me. She goes, may his curse fall upon me, but do this now. We're going to dress you up in, in, uh, in, in cattle cloth. So you'll feel hairy, just like your brother. And we're going to put the robes on you because his eyesight's failing. He won't see. And so she cooks up a stew and she pushes him in. And he goes and stands before his father with the broth and the stew, dressed, if you like, like his older brother Esau. And his father says to him these words. Jacob comes in, my father. Yes, my son. He answered, who is it? And Jacob replies deceitfully to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my games so that you may give me your blessing. Well, Isaac's taken back because the food has been delivered too fast. So he's curious. He says, you've got the voice of Jacob, but you've got the, the skin of Esau. So he eats the food. And he reaches forward and he kisses him. And as he kisses him, he smells his clothing. And he realizes, this is the clothing of my son Esau because it smells like the open fields. Surely this is my son Esau. So in that place, he lays his hand upon Jacob. And he delivers to him in front of God this this family blessing. You will go with everything that we have. You will flourish. Your brothers will will actually serve you and God's blessing will be upon you all of your days. And then Jacob leaves. Well, Esau returns soon after and you could imagine. There is anguished cries from the tent from both father and son as they realize the deceit. But it's too late. Esau says, dad, don't you have a blessing for me? And he says, I've already given it to your younger brother. And so there is enmity and strife in this family, so much so that Esau determines to kill his brother. Rebecca hears about this. She can't fathom the idea of her son, whom she loves, dying. And so she goes back to her her husband, Isaac, and says, Why don't we send Jacob away to get a wife in the eastern country where my family is from? She won't tell him that Esau's plotting to kill him once he's died. But under that ruse, she sends him away to go and find a wife. So for the first time, the homebody is all out by himself in the open wilderness. And on that place, as he journeys eastward, the deceiver, having wrestled with his father and his brother, he goes to sleep and he hears from God. And God reveals himself to him in a dream. He says to Jacob, Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out into the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and I'll watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Wow. I mean, nothing about the deceitful nature, nothing about the changing of character. God seems to be silent on those things, but present with Jacob. Well, the story goes on and Jacob makes it to the east and he comes across a watering hole where there's all these flocks that have gathered. And lo and behold, there's one of the shepherds, is a shepherdess by the name of Rachel. And Rachel, it says, is beautiful in form. And, and he falls for a head over heels in love. I mean, like the, the romance pacemaker just kicks in. He, does, he goes and pushes the stone back from the well because only a, a big sort of he-man thing that a bloke would do to try and impress a lady. And, and she's smitten by this. And and she goes back to her father, Laban, and says, Dad, I believe that, that your sister's uh, son, your nephew, my cousin, has come from the east, from the west, and he's here and, to meet us. And, and Laban welcomes him into the family. And after a month of dwelling with them, he says to Jacob, how about you work for me for some wages? And he says, what would you like? And Jacob says, I'd like to marry your daughter, Rachel. Rachel. She's awfully pretty. You see, it says, Leah, we discover, there's two girls that Laban has. Curiously, just like his own family that he's left, there's the older Leah. It says that her eyesight is failing. But it says of Rachel, she's younger and beautiful in form. So Laban agrees. Seven years work for the hand of Rachel. And the passage says, Those seven years seem but just a few days to Jacob because of the romantic love he had for Rachel. That's powerful love. At the end of the seven years, he comes to Laban and says, I have worked for you seven years now. I'd like to marry your daughter. And he says, sure, let's have a wedding feast. So he does. He holds one. Somewhere during the middle of the night, he gives Jacob probably a little bit too much to drink. And in the morning time, he wakes up and he discovers... It ain't Rachel who's with me. It's Leah. Dad's gone and switched the girls. And so all of a sudden, the deceiver has become the deceived. And he goes out to Laban and he argues and rests. He said, what have you done? And he says, well, our custom around here is not to offer the older before the younger. So sorry, the younger before the older. So what we've given you is the older. But I tell you what, work for me another seven years and you can have the other. So after a week's time, he marries Rachel and works for another seven years. You could imagine the strife that comes up in that family right now. I mean, this is more epic than any TV sitcom you could imagine. For the next seven years, there is a bit of rivalry between Leah and Rachel. Leah starts to... They have this thing we call the birth off. Because yeah? the only way you could really, if you like, win the affection of your husband in that culture, the most primal way to do that was to deliver children, and particular children, males. Leah de- delivers four males. Rachel hasn't even started. She is so furious. She takes her own maidservant and gives her to Jacob and says, have your children through, through her for me. And he does. And, and, and then she produces some children. And, and Leah Leah is furious by this time because all of a sudden there's some male sort of heirs that are being delivered through her. So she takes her maidservant and gives it to Jacob and says, here, you have children through her for me. And he does. <laughs> and then finally, at the end of that seven years, Rachel herself has a son, Joseph. And, and Jacob says, maybe it's time we go home. <laughs> because the wrestling with Laban and the wrestling with his daughters, it just goes, you could imagine. And so when it comes time to leave, Laban says, no, 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 I don't want you to leave because I've discerned that you've been prosperous for me as you have worked for my flocks so I want you to work longer and I'll give you some of my flocks. And so they, they strike an agreement and, and Jacob says, I will take the minority part of your flock, the speckled and spotted ones, and I will exchange them. You could have the purebred ones. And at the end of the time that I serve you, all of the spotted and the speckled will be mine and all the purebred will be yours. Well, if you know your science... What he did was he he then started to manipulate the flock over the next six years. So all of a sudden, the person who has been deceived starts deceiving himself. And he accumulates a huge flock of speckled and spotted goats and sheep. So much so that Laban's attitude now turns against Jacob. And so does his herdsmen as they see their inheritance being eroded away. And so now God speaks again to Jacob. And says, go back to the land of your fathers, to your relatives, and I'll be with you. Because Laban is awfully mad with you. Subtext. And so what we discover is once again, Jacob gathers up his wives, all his children, his amassed flocks. And he flees from the east now to the west, back to the land of Canaan. It has been 20 years. Years since he has last left and seen his mother and his father and his brother. Well, you could imagine, couldn't you? The closer you get, that curious ticking in your mind. What is my brother thinking now? It's 20 years ago, birthright and blessing. I have wrestled and I have wrestled and I'm still wrestling. And as he makes his way back, it begins to grow the anxiety within him such that he decides to send out, if you like, a test case. So he gathers some messengers to him and he gives them these instructions. This is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Go ahead of us, if you like. Meet him and test the water. And when you meet him, say these words. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might might find favor in your eyes. Well, the messengers promptly return after meeting Esau with these words. Esau is coming. And as soon as he had that it was you, he amassed 400 men to come and meet you. Well, what's Jacob thinking? This is his comeuppance. I mean, there is no more deceit that can be gained. There is no more wrangling out. There is no more trying to split hairs and strategize and make things work. This is it. He's at his wit's end. Fear strikes him and he is overwhelmed. And his natural side and his shadow side would have been to reach for that dark side and to try and accomplish things and achieve things and deceit, but it won't work. And so he calls out to God in a desperate prayer that goes something like this. Save me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children But you have said to me, remember when I left, you said, I will surely make you prosperous and make you your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So if you like, he's calling back on God, what God has said to him in the midst of his fear and anxiety and terror. Well, in that place, in that moment, Jacob, after he's prayed this prayer, he still strategizes the best he can. He grabs his flocks and he says, I want to send you out in small little portions. And on the way, when Esau meets you and he says, who are you? You can say, we are servants of your servant Jacob. Please have have these sheep, have these goats, have these things. Because they're gifts from your brother. Hoping to pacify Esau as he comes. And then in the fateful moment where he knows he's done everything he can. Nowhere else he can turn. God, my strategy, my hands. The... It says he, he carries his family, if you like. He moves them across the Jabbok River. And in the middle of that night, the night before the next day, when he's going to meet his brother, the 400 men that are coming, it says that in that dark place, he finds himself alone. And one of the curious, most curious passages in the Bible emerge Right here. Because Jacob has a wrestle. So Jacob was left alone and the man wrestled with him till daybreak. It seemed in the darkness of that place when Jacob was all alone with no other resources available to him, a man met him and fought with him. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, all of his life, Jacob's been pursuing this achievement, this accomplishment, this aspiration. This, it's just in him. And even then, when he's wrestling with this, this foreign stranger that he discovers is a godlike figure. He discovers that he's been wrestling, if you like, with God himself. And in the midst of that place, he still calls out and says, will you bless me? (laughs) So if you like, through this angel, through this figure, God speaks back. And the man asks him this question. Who are you? 20 years ago, someone else asked me that question. 20 years ago, I was in a tent, and someone asked me that same question. It was my failing father. His eyes. And when he asked me that question, I lied to him. And I deceived him, and I deceived my brother. What is your name? Well, for the first time in his life, Jacob fesses up, owns up, says it as it is. No more deceit. I am Jacob. And it's like something shifts in that moment. And the man says to him, your name will no longer be called Jacob, deceiver, supplanter, wrestler, but Israel. Israel meaning Israel, Elohim for God, Yahweh for God, Elohim, another name for God. You strive with God, but God rules. You see, you have struggled with God and with humans you may have succeeded, but God rules and knows all and sees all. You cannot deceive him. Jacob, for the first time in his life, has owned up to his shadow side. The side that he relies upon and draws upon to get things done because he just gets those, those things when he does it. It gets him out of a fix. But every time he does that, it diminishes him and it's destructive for others. Just look at his family. Look at what's happened. God meets him in his most desperate desperate need, in the place of his terror. And he whispers to him the same question that he whispers to us sometimes. Who are you? Are you tired playing games in the darkness? Or would you like to walk in the light? And Jacob answers, It's me. And something in that moment shifts in Jacob's life. And God gives him a new name. You will now be called Israel. God will rule. God rules over all, and God will rule in your life. And he gives him a limp. He gives him a limp, if you like, from that day forward if you like, as a sign, as a testimony, as a reminder. You are a wrestler, Jacob, it's true. But the work I'm doing in you now allows me to work through you, to be a blessing to others, because you've stepped out of the shadow side and you're walking in the light. I wonder if God is more interested in what he wants to accomplish in us than what he wants to achieve through us. In fact, maybe the greatest significance in our lives will come that when we discover that living in the shadows might accomplish the things for a time and a season, but there's an unworthy side, a diminished side. And God wants to call us So what is your shadow side? What is God calling forth in you? Jesus said these words. If the Son of Man has come to set you free, then you will be free indeed. Mark's going to come and just quietly play for us. So I want to create a space for just pause for a moment before they... Sing this song. Now, wonder as you're here with us this morning, if this story resonates at all with you. What is your shadow side? I remember growing up all too aware of one of my shadow sides. See, as I grew up, it's kind of a clunky, awkward kind of relational situation with school and I remember saying as a young boy, I don't care if they don't like me, but I'm going to make them respect me. See, what a young person does in that situation is that they muster any strength or resources or qualities that they may have, and they're trying to channel them in ways that would win other people's approval or respect. That's a shadow sign if you live in that shadow side, you're always looking for someone's approval. You're always leveraging someone to get an outcome. I've met people who have allowed their shadow sides to remain there and grow. All you can say is as you look back upon their lives, you realize destruction, diminishing, trail behind because when they heard the voice of God calling them out they preferred to stay in the shadows rather than come into the light how do you come out of the shadows face up tell the truth and be honest and then open up say, God, would you work in me, draw me out of the shadows, bring me into your light? Over these next two months, would you come on a journey with us? So we talk about shadow sides, all the different kind, because I believe that God is more interested in what he wants to do in us, even more so than what he wants to accomplish through us. And what we discover in Jacob is that through all of his flaws and failings, there is a loving, living God who pursues and pursues and pursues to bring us into the light. These guys are going to sing this song right now. If you'd like to just listen, then you're welcome to do that. If you'd like to quietly sing along, then do that. If you'd like to just pray and work with God and respond to him as he leads. Why don't you do that?